You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Hello listeners, you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. That was Yo-Yo by Two Steps in the Water. And before that was No Allegiance by Simona Castrogham. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the stolen lands of the... Um, from stolen lands and these lands are of the Kulin Nations. Um, coming up t- today, we have an interview with Mama Alto. We're talking about some exciting events coming up and following that, an interview with Simona Castricum talking about ageism, sport and trans misogyny and more. Um, so first, we're going to try and get Mama Alto on the line. Um... And we'll have a little chat about a few events. Hello. Hello. Hi, Iris. Hi, Mama. How are you going? Hi. Good. How are you? Um, yeah. Is the volume... Can you hear me Hello. Okay? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Lovely. So hello to all the listeners. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. So... Your schedule seems very busy this year. What is going on? It is. You know, well, I started the year, I was over at the Malt House. Um, It was a great kind of time for the Malt House Theatre because they had two shows at the start of this year that featured trans and gender diverse performers. They had Krishna Ista in Wild Boar, and then I was appearing there in a show called The Homosexuals. That was great. And then I went on to appear with Moira Finnecane in The Rapture, but now I'm so excited because on September 2nd, I'll be doing my only solo full-length Mama Alto production in Melbourne for this year with the National Theatre in St Kilda, which I'm just thrilled about because it's such a beautiful venue. So I would really love to invite all your listeners to come along to that one. <laughs> yeah, so this is your only like solo event of the year. Yeah, the only I've done a lot of guest spots in other people's shows this year. Um, and last year, me and my amazing pianist, Miss Chief, last year we did 22 solo event shows across the, the course of the year, you know, and we were at the Butterfly Club and Hez and Hyenas and Porcelain Tea Parlor. We did a lot. But this year, just the one big event, um, it's called Exquisite. So the National Theatre in St Kilda called me up last year to commission this event as a special event as part of their season program. And they called me up and asked, would I like to do this and present a cabaret um, at the theatre? Because it is a beautiful heritage-listed space and it's the only surviving Beaux Arts-era theatre in Victoria that survives in its entirety. And they said, would you love to come and activate these beautiful heritage spaces but with a voice that is very contemporary and that stands for a lot of contemporary issues um, through song. And I was just thrilled to do this. And when they asked me to come along for the night, they had looked at a lot of the reviews that Miss Chief and myself had received over the last seven years of performing professionally together. And they had seen that in a lot of the reviews, the word exquisite kept popping up. So they decided that we would call 
call the concert Exquisite, an evening with Mama Alto. And I was just, I was so flattered and so excited. So it's going to be a really special evening. And we're going to do a few of our, we're going to start the evening with a, with a soiree in the grand foyer with the grand staircase, which is this beautiful, you know, white marble and gold plaster and red velvet kind of space. And we'll start with a party to welcome everyone down in the in the grand foyer. And then it'll move into the auditorium where we're going to do a, a cabaret performance of some of our best-loved songs from the last seven years and our interpretations of jazz standards and classics, but mixed in with a couple of new pieces for us that are some more contemporary and modern songs that we're playing with and putting into our special jazz styling. And then after our cabaret recital in the auditorium, we'll invite the audience upstairs into the gold foyers upstairs, the, the light barrel and the gold room, where we'll continue with a jazz age cocktail party and live music from jazz trio, the Velvet Bunnies. And then at the end of the night, I will do a final song performance up there in that exquisite it has beautiful chandeliers. It has a beautiful bar. It's it's like being in in a beautiful kind of 1920s ballroom in an old-fashioned party. Um, but what I love is taking that old Hollywood, old-fashioned glamour from the past and getting rid of all of those prejudices and restrictive ideas of the past. Because, mm. you know, a lot of people talk about that golden age fantasy, but there was there was a lot of stuff that was really, you know, really effed up back then. And we're seeing a lot of that returning now in our politics. And instead, I want to take that that glamour and that empowerment and spread that love around to people who would normally be excluded from that. So I'm really excited about this event. Yeah, it sounds like it'll be a very, very exciting, very exciting evening. Um, I'm also wondering, like, what other events... Are coming up um, because yeah, so you've had a lot to do, a lot to with do with fringe. fringe. Yeah, so we had the beautiful Melbourne Fringe program launch this week on um, on Thursday night, and the Melbourne Fringe is just a wonderful. Um, we had that we had the Minister for Creative Industries from the state government come and speak, and he he also has the portfolio of the Minister for Equality, and he spoke at the Fringe launch about how fringe and emerging artists and the Melbourne Fringe Festival, which supports them, offer a beautiful alternative vision of what the world can and should be in a time when the political mainstream is veering further and further to the right. Fringe arts offer people ideas about freedom and identity. And and that's really the theme of this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's called Out of the Echo Chamber. And it's about the potential for art to bust through to bust through that kind of public discourse and those normal channels of communication and through art give people the chance to walk in someone else's shoes or understand someone else's perspective. So for Fringe, I'll be running two events again. I'll be bringing back Church, which was one of the flagship Fringe Club events from last year, which is um, taking the structures of religion, of, of a ritual worship and of a collective kind of expression but marrying that with the best ideals of various social justice movements, of feminism, of queer theory and queer rights, of the black power movements, of all of these kind of things that stand for equality and freedom. And we'll be running church twice during the Fringe in its new home in the Fringe Hub 
Lithuanian club main theatre. And the main reason we moved it from the Fringe Club over to the main theatre, which is an adjoining building, is because it has comfier seats. We had a lot of people last year sitting on the floor and they were very uncomfortable. But this year they will have beautiful seating. We also have it fully Auslan interpreted. And also this year it will be audio described for the blind and vision impaired, which we're very exciting about, excited about. Meanwhile, in the Fringe Club, I'll be running an event called Transcendent on September 27th. And that's going to be an amazing Fringe Club night devoted entirely to various trans and gender diverse artists from across the Fringe, including some of our colleagues from Myriad and their Fringe event, Transstravaganza, which is going to also be amazing. Mm. So I'm just so excited because of the opportunities that Fringe gives us to you know, give a platform to diversity in a very beautiful and empowering way. Mm, yeah, it is so exciting. I think church was one of my favourite events last year. It was such a good night. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just and in I'm case, so thrilled because yeah. I've actually got you performing at Transcendent mm. with, uh, with that beautiful performance poetry piece that I saw you do at the Myriad um, Creative um, Night at Library at the Dock earlier this year. Because, of course, Myriad, for those who don't know, is such a wonderful organisation using the arts and culture to empower trans and gender diverse people. Yeah, Myriad's Trans and Gender Diverse Collective for our listeners. Um, and I guess you can look up on their, their Facebook page if you want to know more about Myriad. And they have on International Day Against Homophobia and, and Transphobia, they usually have an event every year. And this year they're doing stuff with Fringe and... Yeah, yeah, and that will be fabulous. And um, so there's going to be a lot of crossover between Transcendent and Transstravaganza. But the important part of Transcendent um, within the Fringe program is that it's one of the Fringe club nights. So it's entirely supported and funded by the Fringe, hosted in the main Fringe club, free admission all night for people. People can come and go as they please. Fully accessible venue, Auslan interpreted. And we believe it's one of the first fringe club events worldwide that will feature exclusively trans and gender diverse artists in its lineup. And we're just so proud, myself and Fringe, of what that means and what that says about our community and and the Fringe Festival that we're highlighting this platform and really, you know and it's the same across the whole Fringe Club program this year. We also have a wonderful post colonial um, post colonial First Nations Pacific black and brown extravaganza curated by Candy Bowers called Hyperfragility. And that's going to be just amazing and beautiful. Anna Gogo is creating an amazing feminist event called Girl Power. And it's just, you know, it's really, as well as a, a night curated by Rinsky Ginsberg that will highlight the history and future of what it means to be on the fringe of society and of the arts. So it's really a great platform, and I'm thrilled to be part of it. Mm. So, yeah, so but I was just so thrilled, Iris, that you gave me the opportunity to come on today and talk about about um, the Fringe and also about the National Theatre Presents Exquisite, an evening with Mama Alto, because I just, I'm so excited to get the word out about that and to be finally doing another solo mm. Melbourne show. Yeah, <laughs> no worries. And I thought... Um... Yeah, the last performance I saw you perform at, I think, was the Coco Butter Club, and that's a quarterly Indigenous that and was, People of Colour. So night. beautiful, yeah. yeah. 
particularly with a big focus on queer and trans, um, Indigenous and people of colour. And it was, it was, it's always a very special event to be given a space and a platform and somewhere where we feel safe to connect with each other in that space through art, but particularly at the moment with um, the day, the day of that event this year, you know, coincided with many tragic and momentous events on the Australian and American political scenes. And so to be able to come together from a place of power and empathy like that and, and with the amazing hosting and amazing, eloquent, uh, powerful, myth-busting speeches made by our MCs that night, Davey Thompson and Mayuka Gori, is just, you know, there's something very important and powerful about that. In a time where the powers that be would rather see us all separate and and isolated from each other, events like the Cocoa Butter Club are so important to the community's well-being, not just to the community's political agency, but to the well-being and giving us a chance to lift each other up when so many things outside forces are tearing us down. Mm, yes, yeah. And that it would be remiss of me not to go on from that and mention um, the Justice for Elijah Doughty campaign that Nuka mm. on that night and a lot of Indigenous activists are, are pushing and... There's a fundraiser tonight at the Bella Union at Trades Hall from 5pm and that's going to raise money for his family and in just a little bit of background, Elijah, Elijah was um, involved, um, I mean, oh, that was poorly put. It was just um, dreadful, yeah, it, was, it's just... Oh, it was, you know, it was a case where in, if it had been a white child and a black man and a black man had deliberately mm. run down a white child in a in a half-ton pickup ute with the deliberate intent to crash into him and knock him off a bicycle. That would be murder or manslaughter. And um, yeah. the fact that I thought it was very um, it was very revealing that in the same week, a white man who essentially intentionally killed with a vehicle, a black child, was acquitted of manslaughter and sentenced to three years um, for reckless driving, of which two years might not even be served. In the same week as that, we had one of one of our most famous black singers in this country, Paulini, is facing up to seven years in jail um, for having the wrong identification um, driving. Um, and there are lots of allegations about how that happened. But the fact that for having the wrong paperwork, a black woman can be facing seven years in jail, but for killing a child, a white man is facing less than two years in jail, is very revealing about the priorities of this nation, and it's something quite disgusting. Yes, that is a very, like, revealing... To me, I always see the different contrast than what that reveals not just individual events, but how they're connected to surrounding events mm. in the news and how they're reported. So it's a, I, I really encourage everyone, you might be able to hear my clock going off in the background. <laughs> um, I really encourage everyone to get along to that fundraiser. And if they can't get along to it, they can still, through the Facebook pages, through the various Facebook pages, including Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, they can find links to donate or support the campaign in other ways.
Yes, they can. So yeah, we encourage our listeners to check that out and support the Justice for Elijah campaign. Um, mm. Yeah, I think that's about all we have time for today. Um, it's always lovely to talk to you on the air. It's wonderful. Thanks for your time. It's always lovely to have you as well, Mama. Thank you so much for having me. Good luck with all your project. Thank you. If if any of the listeners are interested in coming along, they can find the details of of my National Theatre show at the National Theatre's website or on the Mother Alto Facebook page. And they can find the details of our Fringe Club Nights at, um, at the Melbourne Fringe website. And um, but we, what what I also really wanted to extend to your listeners was if anyone has financial difficulties with tickets, to send a message to the Mama Alto Facebook page. We have several discount codes where we can arrange financially accessible tickets for people. Yes, that's so important that it's successful for people that can't make it due to barriers such as cost. Um, yes. Yeah. Thanks, Mama. So thank you so much for having me. And, um, and again, I encourage everyone to get along to the fundraiser tonight for the Justice Campaign. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye, Iris. Bye. I'm about to play an interview with Simona Castricum. Um, sorry. And it's about um, her experiences in sport and ageism in the queer community and a bit of stuff about trans misogyny. So I hope you get something out of it. Okay. Um, I'm Simona. I'm a musician and an architectural researcher. Mm. Thanks. Do you want me to intro? Do I play football as well, or? Oh, we can talk about that later. It doesn't have to be like your whole your whole life. No. (laughs) Um. So I've been thinking about particularly the Melbourne sort of Melbourne queer and trans circles now quite youth dominated and I'm wondering if you have anything you can share about um, how ageism comes up in queer and trans circles and well it's very difficult to break into these social circles if you're not evidently the same age as uh, I guess the critical mass so if there's there is a if the, if there is and you know I would agree that there is a critical mass of um, of I guess younger like people in their 20s I guess of queer and trans people that you've really got to look that way mm. and you know I'm in my mid 40s you know and I don't look like I'm in my mid 40s yeah. apparently yet I feel very much like I am in my mid 40s every day um, I'm also very like you know I, I feel as if I kind of wear that but not a lot of people see it so whilst it's very nice that people think I look 28 and that's great I'm not Mm-hmm. And yeah. I find that to be, um, I don't know, it's, I think on, 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 I have access to it because 
I'm a musician and I'm very lucky about that and as a DJ so I, I mean I, I find places like the club and parties to be um, you know places that I, I feel like I can be at and I want to be up until 2am sometimes but increasingly I can't do that anymore mm. and so the interesting thing about yeah, once you do get over the age of 40 at some point is that some of those relationships are really, really difficult to maintain because they need a certain, um, you know, a certain kind of endurance. It takes some kind of endurance to stay up past 2am. It takes a real endurance to be up for kick-ons and do a three-dayer, you know, like... Um, and not everyone has access to that, whether they're 22 or whether they're 42, by the yeah. way, you know. So not only is that an age thing, it's also an ability thing. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't have the ability to party like I used to, probably more so because of my mental illness and less because of my age. But I'm quite sure that those two things put together are, mm. uh, 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 something that prohibits me from maintaining those relationships in ways that I would have been used to. So I think the way that we socialize is really geared towards that. I think some people have made some efforts to perhaps change that, but I think ultimately you need to kind of uh, conform to, Mm. you know, this idea of, or some idea of the, um, you know, the kind of median age 28-year-old queer, you know. And I don't know if that's an entirely healthy thing at all, to be honest. Um, so I think that that's one way that ageism plays out. I think another way that ageism plays out is certainly around language. And... If you were born in the 70s like me or you were born in the 60s and you identify as trans or gender non-conforming, I think that the language that you had to describe um, your own journey or your own lineage through that has changed so much over the years from a time when it didn't even exist to a time now when it does exist and it exists in quite quite an intellectual way and you know, there have been ways that I've been to I've been trying to like understand my own identity and and understand my own uh, transition I guess that hasn't really kind of been you know on point to certain people who are just sort of coming out with you know, really well-read stuff that they've just got out of gender studies. And um, so I think like a lot of people over the age of 40 or something like that might talk about themselves and identify in a certain way with certain words, but they perhaps don't correlate to how a 20-year-old might identify or, or, or might talk about their own experience. Yet there seems to be this judgment about those two and sometimes it's like there's a bit of language policing mm. and that the younger people are telling the older generation, hey, you can't use those words, you can't use those terms. Mm. 
when it's like, but you know, hang on a minute, I've been identifying like that my whole life and it's, it's not your place to come in and tell me that I can't do that. And then there comes this sort of, this sort of generation gap. But, but I think what's important is for this, just got to be so much respect that, yeah, we came from a place where there was just nowhere to go. There was nowhere to come out. There was no critical mass. Yeah. And a lot of us have lived closeted lives. We've lost 20 years or we've lost 30 years. And some of us aren't here at all, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if you're 15 and you've found a critical mass of five people, that's amazing. And, and I know I'm really happy about that, that that happens. But there are some of us that just, there's just nothing out there. And I think that there needs to be a lot of, um, a lot more respect for you know the isolation and the loneliness and the mm -hmm. lack of language that we had and that is part of our legacy and um just needs to uh, I, th I think a bit more um yeah just a bit, a bit more kind of humility <laughs> in that sense sometimes it's kind of like wow you know like just a little bit more humility would go a hell of a long way and and would kind of bridge that gap yeah, so you think like listening and humility and respect would help um, foster sort of more intergenerational relationships? Yeah, it would foster better conversations. Yeah. And I think that's the first thing. You know, it's like, um, you know, like a, a friend of mine who, you know, is like a, an older trans woman is like, you know, wanting to go out places but is too intimidated because they're like well you know they, they just go too late and they mm -hmm. start too late yeah. um, and I'm like well there are some places that start early and finish early so I mean that's one thing just to go okay well here is the space but then it's also like you know when that person is inside that space like you know, how are they gonna yeah. how are they gonna be looked after? And these are really kind of simple things that we think about when we're trying to include, I guess, other minorities, but we don't understand the minorities within our own mm. within yeah. our within within trans and, and gender nonconforming people and, and how to invite people in, you know. And so um, I think that's a real challenge, but I but I think that that's what that's incumbent upon like younger trans and gender nonconforming people to do to make those spaces inclusive it's not for like you know 45 55 yeah. 60 year old um trans and gender nonconforming people to to like have to make like that much effort to get into those spaces because it's such hard work and we know mm. that yeah but we're not prepared to do it you know so it's kind of strange I'm wondering, as a start of question, like, um, was your relationship with sport like earlier on in, in your life, if you want to? Well, my relationship with sport early on in life was, um, something that I loved, but, um, at the same time it was, um, 
something that I always felt really threatened by because it was a place where I just didn't want to get found out mm-hmm. because of course you know I went to a boys school and yeah. it was just you know I could never fit in I was never kind of yeah. the first picked or anything like that and I couldn't really do the things in a social sense or match in a physical sense you know, the things that I needed to do in order to be first picked or to be popular or anything like that. So, um, you know, sport and social capital, I think, go hand in hand to a fair extent, particularly at school. Yet, I always really believed in my ability and I always really believed in my passion for sport and the game. Um, At the same time, kind of sport gave me this sort of you know, um, opportunity for a disguise Mm. so I could, I guess, appear to my family or appear to people that I was more masculine than I knew that I wasn't, (laughs) I Mm, guess. So, um, it may, I I could pretend to be, you know, a boy Mm. a lot better if I, um, played football with the boys. Mm. Do you think through, like... Yeah, what is the relationship between sport and masculinity and toxic masculinity particularly? And why does sport have to be associated with masculinity when women and femininities can be just as much sporting as, like, masculinity? Well, Um, I don't make that association. Yeah, I suppose society sometimes does in some ways. Well, um... Yeah. I mean, I was only making that association because in the 90s it was really boys playing football and yeah. women were kicked out of... Girls were getting kicked out of football when by the time they got to 12. So, um, But I also just happened to love football. But the, 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 the culture of toxic masculinity that was embedded within football goes all the way back to how it's just embedded in, you know, in, in the schoolyard and embedded in, you know, groups of boys. I mean, I only, yeah. I only understood it from a, from a single-sex school. Yeah. Wonderful term. Um, you know, um, and so that toxic masculinity was just so incredibly pervasive and by the time I left school and I was still playing in amateur football level, that toxic masculinity was still there. Yeah. And so I had a choice to either be, okay, well, you know, you've just started university. What are you going to do? You're going to continue to play football and compromise your identity and play every week amongst this toxic masculinity yeah. and this misogyny. Or are you going to maybe have a go at coming out as trans and try and live as your authentic self. Um, I tried both of those things and both of them failed, you know. So the football club is not a place, certainly wasn't a place in 1993 to come out as trans, or was it in 95? Um, So that connection and how we break it is really difficult because it's just so incredibly ingrained and it's like you know women's football can can do a lot to to break 
to break it in a sense because I think that at grassroots level and women's football has really started at grassroots level um, has been a traditionally safer space for queer for queer women for mm. lesbian yeah. women and there's a more more acceptance of trans and non-binary players in in those leagues whereas men's football is just still way off yeah. particularly professional yeah. f- football so if you can take AFL as an example and you know I don't know what it's like in tennis I don't know what it's like in rugby league and I don't know what it's like in soccer but I know yeah. what it's like in the change rooms of a men's football club and the change rooms of a women's football club and the toxicity well one of them is toxic and the other one is not so toxic you know so Mm. but um why is masculinity kind of associated with sport it beats the shit out of me you know depends you know it's just there's there's no reason why it needs to be i think men just see themselves as superior and therefore if there are sports that do have a men's and a women's code like tennis for instance it's still considered that men are better than women even today john McEnroe has come out and said that if serena williams played on the men's tour that she'd be ranked 700 in the world yeah so this idea that men are better than women, I think, also goes in a hell of a lot. And I think that the way that plays out in conversation plays out through ideas of misogyny, plays out through ideas of patriarchy, and that men are just, you know, superior athletes. And it's mm. really disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, that sort of... Misogyny and trans misogyny means that trans women are often like hyper policed in sports because yes, they are. Yeah, they are hyper policed. I know. As we know. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I, playing even as a player in women's football as a trans woman, I know that I do experience. A sp- well, not a spotlight, a torchlight, and a scrutiny and a proof of authenticity that comes in many different ways. Mm. And it's, it's certainly something I have to mentally prepare for every week that, quite frankly, I'm a little bit over. And, um, yeah. you know, and you know, there's the idea of microaggressions and... Um, you know, I think that they really play out, but, um, yeah, there's increasingly, as you know, um, sorry, there's, um, that scrutiny, that, that scrutiny becomes even more sadly as there's this sort of narrative of the first trans player and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's quite frankly, it's just perverse. It's just more cis curiosity. It's more about this tipping point and it's really unnecessary. It puts a hell of a lot of pressure on 
any player who wants to just, you know, come up through the ranks. But it also, this idea of obsessing over the first player means that you are completely ignoring the fact that over the years there have been so many players playing the game, either visible or in silence, mind you, who have identified as, or are trans women or trans yeah. men or non-binary. I know of at least four. Yeah. That are, that are, that have come and in have and who who just through playing I've met and and that we know each other and we support each other and we we talk about things. So, um, you know, just the scrutiny's ridiculous. Mm, you mentioned something about the first trap, the first trans um, narrative or something or something. Well, it's a narrative. It's a narrative, yeah. Yeah. So can you tell me what you mean by that? Like, because the same news journalist from the same newspaper has written two articles on the first player, and they're two different players. One is anonymous, and the other one has a name. Yeah. So it's a fucking idea. It's not a. It's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's, you know, and it pisses me right off. Yeah, this, this kind of, like, to me, is, like, gaze and hyper-scrutinisation and, like, the, spe- the spectacle of it's just, like, othering, I guess. Well, the, well, um, but the theatre of it is just perverse because what it does is kind of plays into the idea of the elite. Yeah. The beautiful the perfect, which is about passing, mm. you know, which is about, it's not about grassroots, yeah. it's about, you know, the elite level, and, and, and that's, it's annoying, it's really annoying, um, because there's so much that we can celebrate, right, and my, meanwhile there's these sort of people just writing, writing stories about, you know, things that they're hearing through the traps. And it's just kind of like, or they're platforming trans misogynists and their noise. I mean, that's what really shits me. Yeah. Is that some, you know, know, I mean, we all know who they are and they say something and then they get the headlines. They get four articles written about them a week. And then they follow up with one article. um, And you know, from that that platforms, uh, you know, a, a trans person. Um, but meanwhile, there's still a photograph and there's still a quote from, from the trans misogynist. And it's like, well, that's, that's not... Yeah. It's only, more, it's only triggering us more, right? Yeah, it's, it's sad that the mainstream media still uses trans misogyny to sell papers and write articles about... <laughs> But meanwhile, that makes it difficult for us to prepare every yeah. week, you know, of the, of the players that are playing. I mean, they've got to prepare every week. I mean, they yeah. don't need those articles, right? No. I'm not saying I want an article written about me every week or, or the, the, the other people I know want articles written. We, we just, there's a, there's a sense of respect that the media don't exercise because they're super interested in this tipping point bullshit, yeah. right? 
This tipping point yeah. bullshit is for cis people. It's not for me. I don't benefit from it. Yeah, exactly. I, do you, I don't know if you benefit from it, but I don't benefit from the bloody so. tipping point. You I know, haven't, bro? I haven't seen like a tipping of like feeling that I'm supported by the world. Like, <laughs> there's no tipping of support into my world <laughs> with announcement of this tipping point. Yeah, so... Like, but yeah. the people that write these articles actually think that they make tangible differences to our lives. And they, yeah. they, they just don't. I mean, they just this, don't. They're, 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 they're allies and they want to pat on the back all the time. And it's just like, no, nah, just, no, Dal, no. Like, it makes them feel good that they're saving us from some, I don't know. It makes them feel, it's all about their feelings. It's not really about social change or like a reconfiguration of like the power relationship. It's just another way that they're, I think they're being polite, but they're reinforcing the same sort of um, oppressive power of self. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it would be a selfless act, right? Yeah. I don't know how many journalists that are still learning a crust at this point in time are into selfless acts, you know? Yeah. (laughs) They're right for free. That's a selfless act. Yeah. Yeah. If only there was more good journalism, because obviously journalists should be paid as well. Um, but I was thinking also of your participation in women's sport and the recent sort of more interest in women's sport, particularly like the AFL that we've, we've mentioned, and how that might have changed your relationship to your body and sport. Well, um, um, my relationship to my body, it's more that like, it's, it's more just like noticing that change because it's significant. And I think to most people who would go through, you know, a medical transition, yeah. that those, those physical changes are kind of evident, you know, as everyone would, 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 would know um, to a certain extent. But once they're tested in the realm of competitive sport, particularly when you've played so much competitive sport mm. beforehand and yeah. now you're playing a bit before your transition and now you're playing it again, just that own, just, just the, your own, I guess, uh, like what you, what you could do before and what you could do after is just completely different. So I guess that, 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 yeah. if I can put it this way, that, that, not like comp- that competitiveness against yourself, I guess, of sort of figuring out what your own, what now, okay, and I, I'll, I'll say this a bit better. Um, it's like my brother always used to talk about personal bests, you know, as an, as an athletics person, you know, yeah. he was always talking about personal bests. And so when I, now I kind of think about, well, you know, if I was working out at the gym or running around the, you know, Royal Park, Princess Park or something like that, what could I run it in? Mm-hmm. And then how that changed a hell of a lot, you know, so it was that own, like your own kind of, um, you know, yourself, 
your limits of your own ability or the, or, you, or the, how you exceed it in, certain, in different ways. So that was the first thing I noticed. But then the next thing I noticed was then once I took that out onto the football field was just a complete change in my own physicality. Um, but I mean, that's the thing. I mean, your skill level doesn't change. Your ability to think your way through the game and think strategically through through playing, is, it doesn't change. But, you know, your, your physicality completely changes as well. Your intensity doesn't change and all of those things. Um, so those, those are the relationships that do change and that don't change. Um, so... Um, I guess the other thing that happened to me was just how injury prone I've been, mm. <laughs> but I I think that's probably more of an age thing rather than yeah. a you know loss of muscle mass and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, mm. but uh, I I think too like that. You know, obviously when I was competing against against men, like physically, I just couldn't match them at all. Um, whereas like, I don't know, like I have a lot more confidence playing on the field that I used to. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really think I've changed that much in terms of, um, my abilities on the field. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a very different, yeah. very different thing. Hmm. So you're involved in what's this team I've seen on your social media that you've been involved in, and it was something on the weekend. I play um, for the univer- I play for Melbourne Uni Women's Football um, Club, um, which is in the which I play for in an amateur level. Um, and they have a villa- they have a VFL team as well, so they have a lot of AFLW players playing. You know, so that's been really awesome is to like rock up and yeah, well, go to training and you've got 15 AFLW yeah. players over there. And in pre-season I was training with them and that was mind-blowing yeah, to, wow. to try, like to do a training drill with, you know, some of my favourite players from Collingwood, for instance, yeah. and it's like yelling their names out and receive a handball. That was really good. But, um, you know, then the, the team gets sort of cut down at the start of the season. So... Be, I ended up playing at at VAFA level, which has been great, you know. I mean, last year I was injured just so chronically that I only played one game, and this year I've been able to play five or six games, which I think is a miracle. Um, So, yeah, on the weekend I was able to play Community Cup uh, with with Recklink Community Cup, which is an annual community game that is put on by Triple uh, R PBS community radio stations and Music Victoria. Um, and because I'm a broadcaster at, um, at PBS, um, I'm able to play for that. So, yeah, I played my first game because there's only one game a year yeah. and played that on Sunday and there was 10,000 people there at it's Victoria Park and I grew up as a Collingwood supporter wow. and wanted to play for Collingwood and, yeah. and loved Peter Dacos as a kid and got to 
wear number 35, which was his number. So I got to play on Sunday. Um, we lost by eight points, but um, it was am- it was amazing. I mean, it was really amazing wow. <laughs> experience. <laughs> Did you get to do the opening bounce a bit? Uh, yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, I play rucks, so it okay. meant that... Um, that I got to contest the opening bounce. So it meant that, you know, it's the start of the game's always, everyone's watching. Yeah. And, I think, and then straight away after that, everyone just gets shit-faced and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't pay attention or is off, you know, yeah. doing whatever. So um, that was really exciting and a big buzz to do that. But also it was the ground that I went to a lot as a kid, I guess, and, and yeah. just supporting football was you know, a place that was really important to me. So, yeah, just when I got my first kick in the middle of the ground and kicked it up towards the Sharon stand, it just felt like I'd had 20 kicks at once. (laughs) It was really exciting. But I think um, I kind of put a lot of of ghosts away, I think. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like an amazing time. Yeah, that was yeah. great. I heard you got a medal or something. Yeah, I did. I got a medal. <laughs> I got the most courageous player award um, for the megahertz, which is the site that I played for, which is PBS and 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 Triple R, and um, so um, yeah, that was great. It was nice. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've missed out on so much football, and 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 you're wondering where yeah. you're gonna fit back into this game, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's only just been in the last few years that I've been able to play in the women's league, and the community cup was always some game that I thought that I might have been able to play as a trans woman, as my authentic self. Um, so it was good to be able to do it. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, yeah, I think that's like everything. Unless there's anything else. Cool. Thank you. So, yeah. Thanks. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.